Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Simon Hill, the general manager of Voodoo's UK studios. Just a few months ago, Simon's company Gumbug merged with Voodoo and his company became their UK studios. In this episode, Simon shares his learnings from game development, what short game development cycles and getting out of the door quickly has meant for his efforts and what he's learned from hyper-casual gaming. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's great. Great to have a, a chat with you and talk about the, the stuff that you've been up to in the industry so far. Sure. <laughs> so, hey, let's get started. How did you make your way into the, to the game industry in the first place? I did a degree that was nothing to do with games. I did a chemistry degree. Same reason that most people do their degrees. I think it's because I had a good chemistry teacher. I enjoyed it. But it got to a point where um, I realized I didn't want to do that. And I started a company that also wasn't in games. So I started a recruitment company a long time ago, I guess now. And it was fun. It was very intense work. It involved every day trying to, we aimed for 100 cold calls a day, which was pretty brutal. And it was quite emotionally exhausting, as you can imagine. So I decided in the meantime to try and learn animation. At the time, I thought I was really good at animation. Now that I work with actual animators, I realized just how terrible I actually was. But what I did was start animating it in Flash. And that was the the start of the actual journey into, into making games, like it was for quite a lot of people. I started making my own games in my own time. I quit the um, the recruitment company. Uh, it was timed pretty coincidentally with a very large crash in the construction market, which is what we recruited for, and began making very small flash games myself and releasing them on an old website, which probably isn't, uh, there's probably still runs and they would be upset for me to call it old, but it was called flashgamelicense.com. And I released the games on that. It was a lot of fun. I remember the first time I actually managed to sell a, a portal license to, I think it must have been King.com back then, long before they had Candy Crush and the mad rush of selling your first game. I did that for three games, I think it was, and then went to get a job at a proper games company, which is when I um, began at Mind Candy. So really, to begin with, I started as an indie dev on my own. I arrived at Mind Candy as a junior developer and really only got that job because the people who were doing the hiring were very, very generous. And I really goofed that test up pretty badly. And then basically in Mind Candy moved through to becoming a game designer and producer. And then uh, with a small company in between, I then went to Space Ape, where I was um, product manager on Samurai Siege, which was their first, uh, their first big game. And uh, not their first uh, game, they, they actually had made something before that, but it was their first big one. And then after that, started Gumbug with two of my colleagues from Mind Candy. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. That was super interesting. You had a company earlier. Did like when you went to actually into gaming and you went to Mind Candy and you saw how those guys operated and to Space Ape. What was the kind of like realization there as an entrepreneur working with somebody who built that company, like seeing what they were doing? Were you already picking up like, hey, these, these are the cool aspects? Do you still look up to like stuff that you picked up from there, from company building? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like those two companies, I was extremely lucky in that the people that ran both of them were extremely entrepreneurial and really kind of tried to instill that in, in the people that work there as well. For very, in very different ways. Um, 
So I'll start with Mind Candy. So Mind Candy was run by Michael Acton Smith, who was a, a UK entrepreneur who started um, that company originally as a kind of augmented reality board gamey, strange combination of like calling up dead phone lines at midnight and collecting blind bag packs of cards and all sorts of strange things that were combined and moved into making a a game which was a little bit like a, the game club penguin but had some very key differences and it was aimed at young children so everyone who was there was not there really because they were in love with the game because it wasn't really targeted at people our age they were there because there were so many exciting things going on in that company so they had the game which was this flash portal game where you took care of a monster which was amazing they had a whole license department which was making trading cards for kids which at the time in the UK were just absolutely exploding everywhere it was driving the growth of the game the game was driving the growth of the cards it was this wild positive feedback loop that was super exciting to be a part of then they had another licensing department which was a little bit more like the um the kind of crusty the clown thing out of the simpsons with toothbrushes and baked beans and everything that had uh, the mind candy licenses on them but in reality every single day there was there was a drive that everybody felt to try and make new things and it wasn't just the game. It wasn't even just um, the, the cards and the licensed products. It, it was the idea that there could really be anything. If the idea was solid enough, we should probably give it a go. It was a very, very dynamic and exciting company to work at. Mm-hmm. As you can probably imagine, without very, very clear direction or one very, very clear remit for the future, it means that as the company grows, that becomes a lot more difficult to, to manage, really. And... Sure enough, as things went on for Mind Candy, uh, it became a little bit tougher for them to kind of amass all their eggs in one basket. And so what happened was there was a little bit of a difficulty making that transition into a into maybe a slightly more mature company that just focuses on one thing and really tries to double down and keep it alive whilst they're also innovating. So I left at that point where I felt that fulcrum was happening because it was just such a rush being there while all the wild stuff was going on, real wild westy. Yeah, it's in a sense like Mind Candy was at that stage kind of like figuring things out. And then there's the explosion of the App Store and free-to-play happening. It must be very distracting for people who are building a, a Flash Portal product. To it was. It what really, happens now? Yeah, right. So that was exploding in the background. And then yeah. that was just another exciting thing put on this pile of things where like, okay, we understand mobile exists. It's probably not going anywhere it's very likely that someone's going to get hit on mobile. So at this point, Candy Crush still didn't exist. Um, Clash of Clans did, of course, but even then it was relatively new. And if you didn't like uh, mid-core strategy games, which I guess a reasonably large portion of the population didn't, then probably mobile gaming wasn't for you. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of easy to forget. There was a point where casual gaming on mobile was basically Bejeweled Blitz. Mm. And there really wasn't anything else. And then when Candy Crush came out, obviously inspired so many other companies to to go down that route and kind of flesh out that genre of match three. But we missed the boat on that a little bit, not because we didn't see it coming, but rather just because there were so many other things that were prioritized. Mm. And I think it would have been difficult at that point to guess the explosive success that was going to happen over about a one-year period yeah. uh, on the App Store. So yeah, it was, it was a difficult time, but also a very exciting time. And I look back on that and think that most of my drive in making new and wacky things has probably come from Mind Candy. And certainly most of the way that we structure the company when it came to people and how we approach hiring and how we approach building a culture inside a company, Mind Candy was extraordinarily good for that. Yeah. I think it filters down from the top, really. Like if you're excited to be there and the people that you're hiring, you know, are good, good people, it's very likely you're going to end up with a fun company that everyone enjoys being at. Yeah. I- Michael is now doing that at Calm, like he continuing is. that road. He is indeed. And I'm very glad to see Calm's doing well because um, Michael is a super inspirational guy. And uh, I think Mind Candy having a little bit of difficulty was a real shame. And I genuinely don't think it was, it was down to anything other than just very, very fast changing of the circumstances in the market. Mm. Some people keep up with that, some people don't. And it's very rarely some visionary who's exactly predicting the flow of things it's just much more likely that somebody took a bet and that one paid off and other people took bets that maybe didn't. Yeah. So um, that was how I felt at the time. Mm. Was it when you joined Space Ape that Samurai Siege was already developed and live? 
Yeah, so it had just been launched, and so it was very, very fresh. And they needed a product manager, kind of someone to come in and help their, the producer on that game to run that as they budded off and made a new game. So mm. Space Ape were very different from Mind Candy in many, many ways. It was very clear the first time I arrived there that everybody at Space Ape was razor sharp, knew exactly what they were doing. Mm. It was like boot camp for game design, boot camp for any discipline, really. Yeah. Everybody was completely with it. There was, there was no cycles dropped in effort or time. That game was doing very, very well, ultimately as a, a very, very similar build and battle game to Clash of Clans mm. because they had seen a very real gap in the market for an Android version of Clash of Clans yeah. and also a game where the clans actually clashed together, which didn't happen in Clash of Clans at that point. And so they delivered a game of very high quality, very, very quickly, that had an extremely solid economy inside it beautifully made analytics system and live configuration system. Another thing about Space Ape is quite a lot of their DNA had come from Playfish. And Playfish were, uh, at the time, really best in class for, for live operations of games, which still was kind of a bit of a dark art to most games companies. It was really well established in the East, um, mm -hmm. where there'd be daily events regularly. And Puzzle and Dragons was this kind of absolutely monolithic, experience for anyone where you come in and the game is fresh every single day and it never ever really felt like it would stop and there was nothing really in the west that felt like that at all mm. so they had built that into a mobile game which was quite unusual because obviously flash games had it but mobile games didn't really and so when i arrived even though the game had just launched it felt very very much like this was the beginning of that game mm. because everything had been built with the future in mind yeah yeah the live ops is basically what Space App is still famous nowadays about, like how that was structured. Yeah, yeah, and it, it really was extraordinary to see because it's such a different mindset, really, from what I'd seen before. Before it was like, let's innovate, 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 innovate. Everything's pre-production, everything's exciting and new. But mm -hmm. there wasn't perhaps as much focus on, okay, right, now the game is out, what happens? So it, let's say we have a really wonderful return on investment of, on our CPIs, then what do we do? Do we just mindlessly scale and put out the occasional update? Or do we try and analyze who our users are, how mm. they're behaving, and make sure we don't lose them and, mm. and make sure we're giving them features they actually want to have rather than just blindly following a product roadmap? Yeah. Um, and that was, for me personally, that was the most exciting part of Space Ape. I'd never really worked like that before. It was obvious once, you'd, once you've done it that that's clearly how game design should be and that's clearly how game production should be. But before I arrived there, I suspect I probably would have found it quite stifling and been like, oh, yeah, but what about this and what about that? A stick yeah. load of post-its on a glass wall. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That realization then when you wanted to have your own games company, was that part of a discussion that you had with other people? You had your own company earlier already when you, yeah. before you went into gaming, but what were the kind of like the, the crossroads there and the, the, what happened? So it's kind of a combination of those two companies that I've just discussed, the things that we learned from them. One is the people, right? You, you know that if there's amazing people that you want to work with, like when all the planets actually align, it just doesn't happen very often that everyone has a break to actually be able to join you on, on that journey that you're planning on doing. It just so happened that after some time at Space Ape, the two people that I most wanted to start a company with, a chap called Ignacio, who was an extraordinary technologist, and, and Ross, who was an amazing artist, were at the same time free. Mm. So there was that part of it, which was amazing. The second part was, at the time, Space Ape were pursuing build and battle because they had very good expertise in it. They knew exactly what they were doing. It was a market they felt they could corner. And if you were in that office, it really felt like that too. Like they were mm. very talented people. I just felt like I wanted to do something a little bit different. And once that itch kind of is there, it's very difficult to shake it. Yeah. So it was the two things together, really. The stuff that I understood and knew about the market now from SpaceX that I'd never understood before, plus knowing that I had the people who would be able to at least give us the kernel of something exciting when we began. And of course, like everyone, when you first start a company, I had an amazing idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell, yeah. Sounds, sounds so familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing, right? When I look back now and think I had that amazing idea, I realize now the most important part of that in my life and, and really in everyone who's, who's starting a thing 
is not the idea you have. It's the fact that you had one. It's not really about how the, the caliber of your idea. It's the fact that you're, some gear in your mind has clicked and now it's just subconsciously when you're awake and when you're asleep, it's just stuff's going in and every now and then it's going to pop something out of the output part. Mm. And it doesn't happen very often. Sometimes it'll happen like once every five years. But the minute it starts happening, it doesn't really stop. And that's really what it felt like. It felt like something had popped out. It's like, whoa, I've solved an incredible problem. Looking back on it now, I hadn't. But um, the idea that I had, I was convinced of it. And that's really all, all that it takes. Mm. What, what basically happened then? You guys started. What was the, the first ideation like? And where did, you, where did you go from there? Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll tell you the process from the end of Space Ape to the beginning of Gumbug when we were on an even keel and things weren't like maybe going to go under. So we had an idea that it would be nice to take a game. It didn't really matter what the core was. It wasn't super important and put a complex social layer on top of it so that a large amount of players could interact with each other as well as playing the game. So we had at Space Ape this incredible community who were kind of independent of us really. So We had a chat system, we had clan wars, but in reality, that in our game was just a very small facet of how these people behaved. So they had several games that they would coordinate themselves around and they would have various roles in this coordination. So there'd be guild leaders and guild advisors, all this kind of stuff. And these aren't roles inside the game. These are roles that they gave themselves externally. And they would try and dominate the leaderboard in many, many games. And it was a very, very complex social superstructure. So we would have a 24-hour event over a weekend where you had to rack as many points up as you could. What these guys would do is have a clan of 50 people was the maximum in our game, and they would rotate people out. So they would have one person leaving, one person comes in. They fight constantly for X hours. They would rotate out for someone else. So there would never, ever be a drop in in combat that was happening in that guild because of the level of coordination. And one person in that guild probably would be the person coordinating it. But it was extraordinary to, to see it happening. It, it was like Olympic sports. It, it was mm. incredible levels of sophistication in a game that really hadn't been built with that in mind. Um, it was much more about making it so that people could enjoy interacting with, with each other. But what it became instead was people around the world forming very strong social groups around quite a difficult task. And because of that, that was how they proved themselves to each other. That was how they interacted with each other. But ultimately they became friends. And so as long as that community existed, the game couldn't die. Mm. It couldn't be sunsetted or whatever the trendy word is now for killing a game. Because those guys were not there because it was a Eastern samurai themed build and battle game. They were there because it was a vehicle for them to prove themselves to each other. Yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a vehicle for them to communicate with each other. And what we wanted was to take that feeling and put it in a simpler game. Mm. Uh, that was our first plan. And I, I think, I still think that could work. I think it's, and now I know it's a monumental task to gear a game up for that. And more than that, those users having been branded whales by countless companies and Facebook advertising campaigns or whatever, are very, very wary of that kind of interaction now. They know when they're being exploited. They're not kind of 14-year-old kids playing Fortnite who are being asked by someone to, you know, pay a load of money for something. They're 45-year-old lawyers from Texas who know exactly what they're talking about mm. and understand when they're being repeatedly rinsed by games that have the same core mechanics, but really no innovation. Um, yeah. So I think the job now would be considerably harder to, to earn their trust, which is the most important thing to do to begin with yeah. before st trying to start a community. But at the time, it was, everything was a little bit greener, a little bit wilder. So, um, so that's how we began. So mm. we started talking with investors and I really didn't know even how to begin, to be honest. Um, I had uh, promised uh, John and Simon that I wouldn't begin until I left Space Ape because I, I told them about it because well, I wanted to be transparent And they were just super, super helpful. So when they knew I was leaving and it was definitely going to happen, they made sure that I understood who the right people to talk to would be and kind of provided me with some direction in that regards. I talked with as many people as I could about my slide deck 
I'd seen so many things kind of in my mind getting funding was still a little bit like um Shark Tank or the the English equivalent Dragon's Den, right? You go in there, there's six people, they tell you how stupid you are and then um and then give you like five thousand dollars to try and start a company. So in my mind it was gonna be very brutal and unpleasant and it was gonna be like combat probably. And uh, if I went in there without knowing every single figure backwards, I'd probably be laughed out of the room. And unless I had some incredible traction, I wasn't going to get any money anyway. It felt like a pretty incredibly, well, it felt like an incredibly large task that, that I maybe wasn't up to. But after I'd started speaking with people about my deck and speaking with people about what it was exactly that investors were looking for, the picture became a bit more clear and I was, it was a lot less intimidating. For example, one person had told me something which perhaps wasn't that useful to me at the time, but I still appreciate, which was that some investors will say no purely because of what their portfolio already looks like. You might have come up with an excellent idea. If it fits very, very closely to another one they have, and their LPs have said, we want you to make sure you've got a diverse play here, and they don't have that much money to leverage, it is mm. perfectly possible that they might speak to you, understand fully what your idea is now, and think, mm, maybe it's not the best idea for me to get involved with these guys. It's yeah. not always going to happen. I know it's a niche situation, but really what it meant to me was maybe there's more complexity here than just someone saying, ah, it's not worth that much. I'm not going to give you any money. Mm. So we spoke to begin with, with Chris Lee, who is a, a really amazing uh, angel investor from London. He's been involved with lots and lots of companies. I know he was involved with um, another company that started not long before us called Delinquent, who's now part of MAG. I know he spoke with um, Daniel on the last uh, podcast. So those guys were very cool and they introduced me to Chris. Uh, John and Simon also introduced me to Chris. So lots of people introduced me to Chris at the same time, which was very helpful. <laughs> it's meant that uh, <laughs> Chris actually met up with me. And I talked through the plan. I think he very politely said how great it was. And in reality, I look back now and I think it was much more about the fact that we had some expertise from various companies that had done things well in various ways. We had a full team, even though there are only three of us. We, we had enough to actually make a game. And we didn't require too much to get to an MVP. Yeah. So for most investors, I think at the time, certainly that was enough to have a punt. And also the UK has an excellent tax break, um, SEIS, for early stage investment, which meant that probably they'd get a kind of 50%, 70% tax break on the cash that they invested. So all of the, uh, all of the wins were behind us. So it, it was a very, very good start. And really, after talking with Chris, he introduced us to other people. We spoke with other people um, that John and Simon had introduced us to. And also, um, I spoke with Michael Acton-Smith, who introduced me to a couple of people. And we ended up, in the end, um, closing an angel round, which was uh, super exciting for us. And we had seven angel investors at the beginning, which was, uh, which was a few. But it ended up being the management from Space Ape, who had been very supportive, um, they obviously made it pretty clear that they didn't want to kind of be in the guts of it. They, they were, it was more of a kind of like, we believe in you guys and hope it goes well, rather than we're going to tell you everything we know and make sure that things are, are brilliant. And some people from Mind Candy as well. And, and then Chris and a couple of other investors. So it felt like the whole process lasted six months to a year, but in reality it lasted about one, two months. It was just such an explosive uh, experience of, of learning things and understanding how the investment process worked. At the end of that, coming away with, with knowledge of what various share types might have meant, the Im implications of having a cap table that might look a bit tight for Series A, even though we were so far away from it, we understood at this point we need to be building for this. The way that we're orchestrating all of our finances, all of our legal stuff at the beginning to make sure if this company is going to be sold, Right now, if we have everything in order, it's going to make that process much, much easier in X years' time. This was stuff that we didn't know, but Chris, Chris helped us with. And after we started getting into that mindset of understanding that our company was a vehicle that was kind of, it was what helped us do what we did rather than defining us completely, it was much, much easier to understand uh, that process, definitely. Mm. So I think really like super interesting detail there was like how John and Simon helped you guys there when you were setting up that you were actually like approaching them with the idea that, hey, this is something that I'm going to be doing. Like, and they were responsive to it with all the support. I think this is something that would happen more if people are thinking about doing their own company. 
and they're still at, a, at another games company, they might want to kind of like stay away from mentioning it before yeah. they're kind of out of the company already. But like, I think your approach was like, that should happen more. Yeah, because they've been so good to me, really. Like, I was very aware of how much I'd learned there regardless of if I tried not to use any of it, it's in my head, right? So it's informing decisions that I make, even if I don't want to try and make the most world's most complex remote configuration system. They have given me something more than my salary and more than the experience of that company, which yeah. is actual usable expertise in the industry. And it would have been a real douchebag move at that point to just hit the road without telling them, start a new company and be like, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. So I think it was only fair. And in reality, them coming in and helping when the actual company was beginning I think I would have still expected it of them if it had been someone else because that's just how those guys operate. A lot of people say, like, you should help the industry and you should try and make sure that everyone's okay. But really, when it comes down to the crunch point, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but Gumbug has been through many of them, it's very, very clear, actually, who does care about keeping the industry healthy and, and, and vibrant. Mm. And I can most definitely say that those guys do. And, yeah. and Chris Lee as well, but really all of our angel investors have just been absolutely amazing for, for making sure that, that we continue existing, even when there's a, a problem coming that we don't know or, or think about, but they've hit before. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about like you raised the funding. Uh, what were your approaches there to kind of like put effort into doing things differently than other developers? You probably first had like what you knew from Mind Candy Space App, you had kind of like the plan there, but plans don't always like materialize as you want them to. <laughs> so. so we went in with that plan. So we, we essentially took a Puzzle and Dragon style game and put that layer on top of it. We made, managed to make that game what we thought was extremely quickly in about six months with a nice remote configuration system. We released it. The day one retention and conversion just weren't high enough for us to use our meager funds in user acquisition. We probably could have made that better than break even. I think it was definitely possible. But our studio wasn't made to be kind of like lifestyle steady increment. We wanted to get a hit, like everyone did. At that point, we realized we needed to do a funding round. And this one couldn't just be an angel funding round. This one had to be a, a relatively serious one. Yeah. And uh, to get a relatively serious one, it became very, very clear very early. You either need some figures to support it, which we didn't have. Or you need an idea that is going to completely break one of the current things that is limiting games development. And the one back then is still the one right now, which is user acquisition, right? It was just an absolute brick wall that everybody could already see coming. It was crazy, really, because it had only been a few years, really, since people even understood attributed ad campaigns. But now here we were in a position where and I have to, it's weird, I remember it, <clears throat> people were still blaming Coca-Cola and car companies for like use, blasting huge ad campaign budgets and it was pushing it up for everyone else <clears throat> and they didn't know what they were doing and why were they doing it. I still don't think people understood at that point that companies with incredible machinery, machine learning sophistication, like Machine Zone, they were the guys doing it because they had seen that this is very clearly what the limiting factor was going to be. And it was, it was a, a, a very complex system, but it was one that could be understood. And it was one that when you did understand it, you immediately were a tier above everyone else, regardless of the quality of your, of your game almost. Not suggesting their game wasn't very high quality, it was. But I mean, a good understanding of user acquisition at that point was almost as important as having a game idea itself. So we just sat down and thought, how can we, how can we do this? How can we not use a load of cash to beat it? And at the time, Esports, um, the word was being thrown around a lot. It's not quite as uh, tired as it is now at the time. It, it was still a bit more exciting. And we had decided that we didn't really want to make an esports game, but we did want to make a game that was as fun to watch as it was to play. Because that very obviously, to some degree, solves that problem on its own. So mm. that was the core vision a game that is fun to watch. And it has to be quite simple and it has to be on mobile. So There were lots of things about mobile that were incredible, right? Mobile for us was like a million windows into a persistent world all at the same time. There there had never been and still hasn't been anything in the world like this ever made. Everybody has one. They use it all the time. And still most games that you're playing are still kind of built with that old format in mind of this is a game and it should behave like a game and you play through it and that's the end. 
at that point, there were a few more that were a bit more incremental. But even then, the way that you kind of finished a free-to-play game was just to put a gravel pit at the end of it mm. and say, okay, well, this building takes, I don't know, two weeks to make. So you have to pay, really. And it's just a very sad finish to a game. Is that You've been playing and enjoying it and the tempo's high and then suddenly you have to stop. You can't, you can't keep playing. Mm. Even if you pay, sure, you get a session out of it, but then you hit with the same wall again straight afterwards, except this time the wall's a bit stronger. It's mm. like a very strong signal that you should stop. Esports games to us didn't have that at all. In fact, they had the opposite. The more you play, the deeper they become, and the more you want to experiment and play. So we chose um, to try and find a game core, make our own streaming system. So inside the game, as you were playing, your phone would be live streaming to various platforms that you chose. That technology still doesn't really seamlessly exist. And at the time, it definitely didn't. So there were things like Mob Crush, which were very exciting. Games were uh, apps where you could open them, start streaming, close them, go into the other app, open it up, and then your stream would be live. But our our intention was actually far more small streams. So the minute you start a match, the streaming just begins. And you can send the link to anyone and you can share it. And inside the game is a list of current matches that are being played that you can watch. While you're watching the matches, you can cheer people, that kind of stuff. Those ideas would later get a little bit fruitier, but that was our core thing. We're going to build a streaming technology. We're going to build a watchable game. We're going to wrap those two things together and we're going to make a completely new kind of game. And, and that was our pitch. That was what we wanted to do. Yeah, we went out with that remit, really. We had selected a load of different genres and we ended up on the fighting game genre for a variety of reasons. That, that There wasn't really a fighting game on mobile, which was the most important thing. And also fighting games are definitely fun to watch. Um, another company in the portfolio of our investors had the guys who had made Evo, the Evo tournament, which happens every year, which is a huge fighting game tournament where people all around the world come and play Smash Brothers and Street Fighter. And so we had watched a lot of those and there were just some absolutely insanely incredible moments in them. And we wanted to replicate that on mobile. Let's talk a bit about like from this today, like where you guys are now, you merged with Voodoo recently. What happened at that stage when you had that idea and then towards the merger? So what happened was we made that game. It took us about two years. We released it. It got a huge amount of organic traffic many millions of organic downloads. We never, we never paid any money on UA for that game. But it didn't monetize very well for the reason that we wanted to avoid that big gravel pit thing and inside the game, that was just fundamentally missing, really. So mm. it was an issue. So we started another game which had the same core tenets. This one had a slightly more sophisticated um, viewing system, which was pretty exciting. You could watch the game and actually affect it as you watched it. So uh, it was a battle royale game. This, again, was kind of before they were quite as tired as they are now, mm. where you could see a player playing the game, and as a spectator, you could bet that they were going to die in the next 10 seconds. But in the game, it would show a, a indicator above that player's head showing that someone had bet that they were going to die in the next 10 seconds. And even the player themselves could see it. So it became a kind of a natural thing that affected gameplay. So if someone's walking towards cover and they suddenly see a load of those appear on their head, they know it's fairly likely that there's something in that cover that's going to give them a bad gameplay experience. So we, we made that game and it, the thinking got a bit more sophisticated. And in reality, we got to the point where we were soft launching that game and we realized that the ideas around the metagame and the ideas around all these cool, fun things that would make it into a very, very exciting mobile experience were all secondary to the core mechanic, which maybe we just hadn't spent enough time on. And at that point, I started asking a lot of people, like, how do you fix the core mechanic? How do you make sure when you start a new game, it's good? And no one really had any convincing answers for that. And then it got to the point where we probably needed to do either another funding round or think about finding a home for Gumbug with another company. And the idea of a funding round to me, I just thought, we can come up with a more dramatic idea that's even more exciting and wild about streaming and the future of everything and how amazing it's going to be. And I'll go in with jazz hands and, and everyone's going to be blown away by the incredible um, stuff that I'm, that I'm talking about that's going to take three years to deliver. Or we can try and address the problem that we very clearly have, that I think almost every studio has, which is just 
why is the why is the start of making a computer game so so difficult to get right? Why is that so hard? And some people might say, I guess it, it, coming up with a new idea is difficult. But I'm not just talking about new ideas. I'm talking about all ideas. I'm talking about making a match three game. You can probably still screw that up pretty easily if you don't do the beginning part right. That's absolutely wild. There's something fundamentally wrong there. And we were in a position where we had now got through most of our VC cash and we still didn't have an answer to that question, which really is the first one. It's the first question. How do you make a fun game? And everything circles back to it always. It's the most tired, cliched thing that people ask each other, but really it's the only thing that matters. And it's the hardest bit. And it's the hardest bit because of a few things. One, and this is also inescapable, it is hard to come up with a new idea. It is hard. And coming up with a new idea that doesn't suck is even harder. The second thing is that game designers and producers and people in the games industry in general are very, very, very precious about their ideas. People believe that the idea they had has some intrinsic advantage over someone else's, even if they see the same game come out while they're developing. Yeah. It's this strange cognitive dissonance that exists in every single game designer that they understand that mechanic better than anyone else, and they are the person to deliver it perfectly. Mm. And when the evidence is shown to the contrary, the normal thing that everyone will say is like, well, it just needs this changed or this refined or that done. Like, don't worry, it's going to work. It'll be, it'll be better. And if you're not doing that in front of anyone, if you're doing that in private, in a games development studio, on your own, in a closed environment, then it's a very, very uh, dangerous way to develop games. And we were starting to realize this. So we talked to a few chief operating officer candidates and... Really, what we'd worked out is that a lot of these guys had a lot of experience, but all of them had the mindset that games production is going to take this much time. Uh, it's going to require this much stuff here, this much stuff there. We're going to have to talk to these partners, all this kind of stuff. Until we met one guy, um, Alex Willink, who came in and told us that our development cycles were far too long. We should never, ever be making a game for more than a month or two without someone having played it because it's an incredible waste of money. And basically just came in with a super pragmatic thing of saying the way you're developing games is fundamentally wrong. Right? The, the, the end bit where you add on all the nice stuff and the metagame and the publishing, that bit's great. But the beginning bit where you're actually coming up with the idea and trying to refine it, like if you came up with the idea in the, in the first place, why are you also the person that's refining it in isolation? Surely there has to be someone doing something here. It's like making a house in the dark and by torchlight only. And then the first time you see it in the daylight, you realize all the walls are wrong, but you can't get rid of any of the walls because everything's going to collapse. Yeah. So we decided at that point, what we would actually do is try and make very, very small MVP slices of our core experiences and try and test them. And we didn't really know how we were going to do that, to be honest. We knew that it was possible. We knew that some companies did it. We knew that Graham Games, very, very good at doing this. I think they have a hyper-casual department. They have um, merged Dragons as well, uh, which is a, obviously a very successful game. But their methodology is test very quickly, small chunks. And really, so Alex then joined Voodoo. We got in touch with Voodoo, and we had a chat with, with Gabriel, who's the VP of Games there, and it became very clear that their methodology was the same. So they were making hyper-casual games. And the difference there is they do these small tests to see if it works. If it does, great. They put it together in a very, very solid, robust way using all the stuff they've learned and release it in a very, very short life cycle. We were trying to make bigger games that start with that process. Mm. But still, um, the, the beginning process of making any size game should really be that. This episode is sponsored by the Personal Revolution Podcast. Have you been stuck inside, wondering how to take charge of your life? Is there something you want to do, but haven't been able to do it yet? In Personal Revolution, best-selling author and life coach, Alison Task, helps you to take control of your life with inspiration and humor, so that you move from where you are right now to where you want to be. And have fun doing it. It's like having a personal coach whispering in your ear. This three-month podcast course, along with bonus episodes each month, will help you create a clear vision 
for what you want out of life, removing the frustrating blocks that are holding you back. Develop a detailed action plan that will drive you to where you want to be and build a network that will help you create your future. At $4.99 per month, the Personal Revolution podcast comes with a personal workbook and real-time access to a community of other change makers working towards their goals with positivity, possibility, and momentum. And for a limited time, all of this is available to you for free. Download the Himalaya app in your app store, look up Personal Revolution, and enter the promo code REVOLUTION at checkout to get your first month absolutely free. If you're ready to go after a better life, you are ready for a personal revolution. What do you think about, like, I was just recently rereading uh, Creativity Inc. about, like, the Pixar's brain trust process, where basically you have a room full of people and the director comes with the movie, the draft, and then, you know, they get, like, honest feedback, like, candid feedback in a trusted kind of like safe environment and then they can react to that. Do you think it's it's possible at the early stages also to use your peers for, for guidance? What do you think? Yeah, I think definitely. That's definitely possible. There's different tools for different problems, right? So the first problem is, do I feel like there might be massive problems with this game that I, game idea that I'm not seeing? At that point, yeah, I think a, a small group of of seasoned vets is is the best way to to ask that question. Hmm. I still don't think you should have to take any feedback from someone and, and really implement it as long as you know that inside a very short time frame you're going to expose this game to the general public hmm. because they won't tell you why they don't like it, but they will give you a very good idea if, if they don't like it. Hmm. So releasing something in it having very very low retention, very very low conversion, very very low session amount, session length, all these things in conjunction. It's fairly clear that you haven't got a very good idea. But someone can probably tell you when you're coming up with the idea in the first place if there's a mistake that you've made that they've made before. Exactly, yeah. They can spot something that this definitely won't work. Or, you know, this, <laughs> there's a dead end with this thing that you're trying to do here. That there's yeah. no, it doesn't, you know, nobody wants to do this like 30 days after they tried it the first time. Yeah, exactly. There's certain game ideas where people... So one of the best exercises, I think, in kind of trying to understand how to make a, a fun new game is to look at old games that are quite complex and try and imagine how you would distill them down into something very, very base. And there are some games where everybody wants to give it a try and it's just an absolute graveyard of game design ideas. And one of them is Advance Wars. So Advance Wars, everybody loves that game because it's mm. that old Game Boy game. It's so much fun. Boiling that game down for some reason is incredibly difficult and, and uh, unpleasant. So if someone's making an Advance Wars game, if anyone's listening to this making an Advance Wars game, I'd suggest talking with some of your peers first just to make sure there's not any absolute clangers in there because there's some game genres and game types that just are filled with them because everybody wants to try them. Strategy is a genre, right? If, I'm, if I was making a strategy game, I would always ask um, people first, like the brain trust thing, whatever it might be, mm. because strategy is well-trodden ground. So I think um, if I was unsure at all of my design, I'd always ask someone. Mm. So as an entrepreneur who's managed to take their company, like the startup under the wings of a bigger one, like what did you learn from that process or the last year or so? Oh man, it, there's just so much. The biggest thing is, so we got to a point where we knew we were going to sell. And so we started kind of going into a holding pattern almost because we didn't want to start a new big game because we knew now definitely that we had to do small bets and test them. We knew that was what we were going to do. It was that or nothing at all. So we decided to do some contract work so that we could continue until we either found the resources to do this or someone that matched our vision for what we would like to do. And it was at that point that it was very clear that if you don't have a good team that trusts you and trusts each other, it doesn't really matter what your plans are. The work that we'd put in at the very beginning to make sure that we had found the right people, that was when we realized it, it paid off. And that was when I really understood how important that lesson was. Mm -hmm. If you are just hiring whoever you can or people that are functionally there to fit 
fill gaps, that's fine. It just means at good times, I think that's okay. But I think when things get difficult, that's when you're really going to expose the problem of that technique. And really it's with, with all of this stuff that we've been talking about when it comes to acquisition of a company, it's, it's a lot of stress on a company, even if the process is very amicable, which it was with Voodoo. We matched in vision. We were both super pumped and excited. Ultimately, there's no escaping the fact there's a load of legal work in the middle of it, right? There's, there's going to be, but it is a very exciting process. But also at that point, you realize if your company values are strong, if your company personnel are excited and the goal that you're, that you're aiming towards is the same as the company that you're joining, that's really the only way it can work. Mm. I think just trying to find an exit or trying to find someone that will buy your company is a very, very bad idea for a variety of reasons. And these are the things that I guess all the lessons that our angel investors and our institutional investors had been teaching us for the last few years, it wasn't just keep your cap table tidy, make sure you've done all these things. It was more get into the mindset of understanding that these things are the legal representation of, of how your company has to behave. You have to understand that you have these investors. They have these interests. You have to understand if you're going to join a larger company, they have certain interests. They have to be making money. What's their goal? How, what do they do? Are they going to IPO? Are they going to exit through a sale? Uh, are they going to carry on as they are? Are they going to pay dividends? Are there, is there some kind of sharing across the company? Like, How are they getting to their top point? What is the top point? If that doesn't match what you're doing in your sale or even what you're doing when you're gearing up your funding rounds, then you're going to have a fundamental problem when you, when you try and line up your company for an exit. Mm, right. I felt at that point that I was very lucky that so many experienced people had pointed me in the correct direction as we were going through these formative phases because by the time it matters, it's way too late to change it. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of like down the road already into some, some kind of situation. Maybe cash... You know, the cash situation is, is the reason that you're selling. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right? There's always a fuse burning. And yeah. I think there's many very, very talented fundraisers out there. I mean, we've all, we've all met them. People mm. who you start speaking with them about their idea for their company or their game or whatever, and you end up super jazzed up after like half an hour. You come away absolutely buzzing, like, whoa, that's amazing. That's really, really cool. Like, it's nothing to do with what I'm doing, but it sounds absolutely incredible. And then a week later, you're like, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, you're so pumped up from it. And some people just have that, right? It doesn't really Mm. matter if there's faults in their plan. It doesn't really matter if the thing they're suggesting isn't super feasible, even with a small amount of thought. As long as they believe in it unbelievably, relentlessly, passionately, I kind of just believe that they'll probably find someone to give them funding, right? It's quite a liquid market at the moment for for getting funding rounds in, providing you have expertise and, and some some track record of some kind with a company that knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. I think passion is what drives most people through. Yeah. Hey, I want to talk a bit more about user acquisition with you because that's definitely something that I identify as like an issue. I'm, I've been talking to a lot of schools that are teaching game development in Finland. Mm. And mostly they're looking at, you know, art, programming, there's sound design there, still like for some reason but like what is missing usually is the analytics user acquisition those like super key components like the critical areas that are missing and then you see companies like popcorn coming up who are killing basically because the founders had that background of user acquisition like yeah what do you think is are the are the advices there for for people who are in gaming thinking about like how can you actually go after the market now since everything is so UA driven? So the Heinz brothers are firstly like two absolutely remarkable guys. They are. Speaking with them, so I used to go to GDC every year because firstly because it was just exciting and amazing understanding the industry you're in. It's easy to forget how absolutely extraordinary the games industry is. It is out of this world. So I'd go there, have this amazing time, meet all sorts of amazing people. Mostly they'd be talking garbage, myself included. Like everyone's just kind of gobbing off about what they think about everything, which is, <laughs> which is nice and exciting and fine. <laughs> and then I met, met Tommy and he was talking about stuff when it came to UA and what actually it meant to be buying users into a game, what users were actually looking for that was so far ahead of the stuff that I've been listening to from other people that just 
it's like peeling off a layer from the top of the games industry and understanding what's actually underneath making it tick. Hmm. There's a reason that the UI guys are doing so well in the industry and well, there's a few of them, right? But one of the main ones is for them, it's not about making some kind of incredible games masterpiece that's the best thing in the universe. That is a wonderful side effect of their pursuit for brilliance. And the pursuit for brilliance for those guys is a little bit different because they've come in super humble. They don't pretend to be game designers. This is one thing that was uh, amazing when I went to Voodoo, that they're, a lot of their publishing managers who kind of have unbelievably good product knowledge and guide things in the most amazing way, all repeatedly said over and over again, we're not game designers, we're not game designers. But the stuff they came up with, the way they implemented it, and the Heinz brothers are the same, the way they talk about stuff and the ideas they come up with and deliver are so good and so sharp, like better than anything I'd see from like a, a normal game designer who's kind of like fairly comfortable sitting on their laurels. They come in humble and, and understand that what they're trying to make is something for people. It's not for them. Everybody has a kind of a Venn diagram of what they like and what the general public like. And for some people, if you're very, very lucky, that overlap is very, very large. And everything you make, people are going to love. For some people, that overlap's very, very small. And you're going to have to try loads and loads and loads of times until you find something that people like. What the Heinz brothers have and what really Voodoo have and what really anyone who's come into this from that angle rather than just coming and blundering in as kind of console-style game development is understanding that you can try and hit that overlap. You don't have to just make a game that you thought of that morning every single time. You don't have to make a game that is very close to one of your childhood games that you loved or, or a game that you thought was fun that you played four months ago that actually you think maybe you can do a better version of if you make it a hybrid or something. If you think about the stuff that you've done in the past that people like and try and focus on those things, what you're going to start doing is getting more successes and you're probably going to be able to do it faster. And then if you take yourself out of the equation completely, this is where the humility bit comes in. If you remove your desire to be a game designer and just say, I know what people enjoy, it's these things. It's having control. It's making sure the game is system one. It's having um, the ability to get in very fast and understand what's, what's happening. The ability to very, very quickly feel like I'm getting better at it. Th these are core, core, old, old things. They're true of football and, and various sports, all sorts of games that we've kind of forgotten a little bit in this weird escalation arms race of trying to make everything super high fidelity, 3D, look at my beautifully optimized shaders. Whereas really, in reality, all people really care about is a fun experience that can... It's fine if it's small. That's absolutely fine. If it's big, that's also fine. But for the user, there's not much difference. And talking with those guys, they say, well, if you're buying this user and you're saying okay, uh, a 10 cent user is not high enough quality for, for it to even be worth me putting them through my game. You can blame the user and the attribution, or you can maybe blame your game and say, should it be a $5 user or a $10 user to come into my game before they even understand enough to stay? <laughs> That's, yeah. That feels pretty wild. Uh, and really, I didn't think that at all until I'd spoken with enough people about it. Like, there's many games companies when you tell them if you've got a 10 or a 20 cent CPI, they'll be like, whoa, how? But it's all in that experience. Is your game understandable? Is it fun? And this rule is so fundamental, it doesn't even just apply to games. It can apply to anything. It's just like, is your product fun and understandable? It just so happens that the games industry is, is very, very advanced when it comes to advertising and attribution, measuring user performance, all this kind of stuff. And really, when you come at it from that side, you understand why UA companies are just smashing it to pieces. They don't have the hang-ups that we do. Mm. They, they come in a lot more fresh and open. They see this huge opportunity of, we can make a game that people find fun. That won't be the hard bit because we'll just try lots of little ideas until we find one that's good. Mm. But then once we do find one that has an ROI that's, that's positive, we can scale it very, very quickly because we know mm. how to do that. Mm. And again, this is something that Daniel from MAG was saying in your previous podcast. You, the UA discipline is now not an isolated discipline from the game. If I buy, like we were saying a moment ago, if I buy a 10 cent user, they're going to behave differently from a user that's come in from a Facebook campaign that's come in at $15. They're not going to behave the same way in a game. If mm. I have a complex game, my game design should be able to facilitate all of those player types. 
It doesn't have to, but there's no reason for it not to. I think if you want to focus specifically on very, very high value users, that's fine, but understand you're going to start competing with social casino. There is no one on the other, on the other end. That's why hypercasual exists. That's why there's been this absolutely wild Cambrian explosion of games and no one can really understand where it's come from. It's come from the fact that we all left that space behind by just assuming that everybody wants a higher and higher and higher production value experience and just forgot to do anything innovative. We just did loads of strategy games, loads of match three games, everything had a saga map, like over and over again, and kind of forgot that really there's still those people who are just now no longer being served at all. Like some people just want to have a wood turning game where they shave something out of wood. It feels fun. It feels super rewarding. Some people just want to drop down a helix and like go through the gaps. It feels really fun. It's a puzzle game, right? And all of that was just left behind. And hypercasual isn't a completely new genre. It's a genre that used to exist, that stopped existing, and now has come back with people who are sophisticated to understand that it should still exist. There's no reason for, for these games to completely disappear. People really love them. Yeah, it's, it's like basically the Flash Portal games 15 years ago. It's yeah. the same, same experience, and people were playing those like crazy. Yeah. And that's why there's this kind of weird echo in, in mobile games and the Flash industry. You see the games, all the trends that happened in the Flash industry then happened in the mobile industry about three years later. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about Voodoo. Bit. I, I wanted to kind of like bring up two topics there, the mission of the company and talking about like personal development for people because the company is very cool and it's grown quickly. A lot of innovative stuff coming out regarding user acquisition, new kind of gaming experiences. Yeah. Can you wrap up the kind of like the mission there that you feel that has been really like something that's come up now that yeah. you've been a part of the company for a while? Yeah, absolutely. So. When I arrived, the voodoo mission as it was, was to make games that would entertain like, everyone around the world. So it's what we just discussed. It's, it's an underserved section of people to make fun, precise, excellent experiences. That is, is one part of it. Another part is sharing that expertise and making sure that other studios, um, internal studios, everybody who's interested in being a part of this larger movement of making a new wave of games, has the resources and understanding that they need. And really, Voodoo are unbelievably good at sharing that stuff. Even before we were a part of Voodoo, they were super open with stats and lessons they'd learned, ways to make games feel better, ways to do this modular release um, system. Even if we hadn't ended up with Voodoo, the amount we'd learned from them just by talking to them was huge. Mm. And they do that with all of, all of the developers there they're involved with. It's a very, very open book, all, all sorts of things, publishing newsletters. They have little kind of conference meetups in different countries to make sure all the developers understand what the latest developments are because obviously it moves so fast. Mm. Like I say, it's a, it's a movement of making these games and making them steadily increasing quality whilst never losing what made them hyper-casual in the first place, which is that mm. core fun and understandability. What we have come in as is probably a step into something slightly new, but still using those same methodologies that made Hypercasual so successful at Voodoo. So the idea of making a small piece and testing it, making sure it works, and then building on top of that. It's just the experiences we'll be building on top um, have slightly deeper metagame than just traditional level structure or whatever, whatever it might be. Something mm -hmm. that can hold a player's time and emotional investment for a little bit longer. It sort of feels like since the, the games that Voodoo is bringing out, which have the short period of development, one to two months, and you see if it works or not, and do you move on or something. I think it also helps a lot when you're bringing in like new teams, when there's a merger or an acquisition, because you know everything is moving in rapid pace. You're not stuck with a project for two years and like... Then, then you merge to a bigger company. How does that fit together? Since like it just everybody needs to kind of like accept that we're now living in this age of knowing things more quicker than than it yeah, used sure. to be. But but here's the thing that still can exist. It's just the anatomy of it has to be a little bit different. So mm. you, let's say I'm making Skyrim. I want to make Skyrim on mobile. There is still a place in the world for that 
game, I'm assuming, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so Skyrim is a good example because it's made out of lots of smaller components. So Skyrim is movement, it's battle, it's lock picking, it's potion making. I don't know what other stuff there is. Spell crafting, that weird kind of physics sword bashing on people's head. There's loads of really fun stuff to do. But all of them really in isolation of their own experiences. Mm. I'm sure you'll find many people if you talked and said, like, what did you do in Skyrim? They'll be like, well, all I did really was just walk down the stream and pick up like crab carcasses or someone that just searched for Nern root, or someone that just ran through a field eating bees. Like, there's loads of like wild stuff you can do in that game that isn't related to the core combat. Yeah. And I think I've yet to find someone who completed Skyrim. But everyone I know had a good time. And I think you can validate each one of those small micro experiences as its own game. I think mm-hmm. if you were to consider each hyper-casual game as a tool in a toolkit, you can still make something massive and amazing. All that this, this new and amazing way of making games that is working better than anything before says is you should just test each bit. And if you, if you can't break this down to component parts that you think are fun, that should be a bit of an alarm bell in itself. Mm. You know? If mm. this isn't breakdownable into, into bits that you think people are going to find fun, then maybe you're making a monolithic nightmare. You know? Maybe you're making a, a huge, waffly old game that's probably never going to get made. Yeah. And, that, and that's another thing, right? Is quite often with games, the creative vision at the beginning is, here's what I would like. Here's the five core things that I really want. And by the way, the rest of it is just this game. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's almost every game that I've worked on that's been large. Mm. Is our core innovations, and the rest of it's just that game. And okay, when we add PvP, we're going to be winning this thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. And that is fun, and that is great, but, and that does work. The thing is, you, just, you don't have to do that in isolation, do a two-year drum roll and wait for the curtain to be pulled back at the end and see if anyone likes it. You can just test it at the start and see if it works, and mm. then remove it from the store, whatever you want to do, but then at least you're going to be working on something that you are confident internally, both inside yourself and inside your company, is going to work. Mm. And I think it just it makes it go faster. It makes everyone more motivated. There's no reason not to do it other than being worried about the feelings of the game designer or producer in the first couple of weeks when they release it and it doesn't work very well. Yeah, Even, even then, that's, that's not going to be a problem, right? Yeah, totally agree. Hey, Simon, I have some hot seat questions for you. Sure. These are- Sure. Sweet and short. Are you ready? Absolutely. What is the topic in gaming that doesn't get talked about enough? Mm. I think um, it's going to be difficult for me to, to say this without going back on everything that I've just rambled on about for ages. But I think um, <laughs> production and games design in general, I think it, it's stagnant and the model we use is quite old. And no one really addresses that. They just address the problem with user acquisition and return on investment or whatever. It's like the, the problem isn't that. The problem is the process you're using means that that is the problem you focus on because that's what happens at the end. Uh, whereas in reality, you could have worked out that this would have been a problem right at the start. So I think it's something that everyone has a problem with. We did for years, and it's only now that we're doing it in a different way that I realized how silly it was to spend that much time doing it. What common industry advice do you disagree with? Using KPIs is a very good and important thing to do, but a lot of people increasingly rely on just one metric to see whether a game is going to be a success or not, and that's retention. It's very, very useful, and I think um, if you've got a game with great day one retention, that's fantastic. There's many, many games that have great day one retention and will never get their cash back, and similarly, there's many, many games that have very low day one retention and monetize well enough that that's not a problem. So I think the general industry trendiness of just banding around, I've got this new game and it's day one is X percent. I'm not sure how helpful that is to anyone. Hmm. What is an optimal green light process for a game concept to go into development, even like prototyping? So we normally just have the consensus internally that this is fun enough for anyone to start working on. And everyone can choose themselves whether they'd like to actually start working on that game in our office. So if you can't persuade anyone in the office it's fun enough, it's very unlikely that the game's even going to be begun. Uh, and then the journey from that to, to actual releasable prototype is quite a short one. So, um, so yeah, that, that's the normal process. Or if a, if a developer just has some spare cycles on their own, they can probably kick something together pretty quickly themselves. 
So um, the green light process, we try and keep it as light as possible. The time it really becomes something where we really have to consider it carefully is when we have some early KPIs. What has been the worst 24 hours for you in your career? Worst 24 hours. So there's, I mean, there's loads of really bad ones that relate to various VC comings and goings and, and funding comings and goings. But I think probably it was the first time I ever released a game and it got put on the store and it got absolutely panned. Mm. Uh, <laughs> now it's fine. Uh, it's okay. If people don't like my game, that's all right. But the first time it happens, it is tender, very tender. And uh, I was making games alone in my underpants and my dressing gown. So yeah, it was pretty tough. <laughs> okay. Doesn't sound too bad though. <laughs> I have some uh, final questions for you, man. Uh, what's your favorite book and why? My favorite book is called Cat's Cradle. It's by Kurt Vonnegut. It's about a strange family where the father had helped in making the nuclear weapon that stopped the war. And there's this strange island community, which is very odd, which the protagonist visits. It sounds super boring when I explain it, but it's not super boring when you read it. It's really about creating things without uh, thinking at all about who they're made for, I guess. The main antagonist and protagonist in the book is this chap who makes all sorts of strange uh, scientific discoveries and they start threatening the world after he died. But it's interesting. It's a very cool book. Cool. Do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work? Yeah, so the biggest thing that affects how I, how I do my work was... The second game I released, there's a lot of early lessons. The second game I released, uh, I couldn't believe it, but on the same day, another game was released onto the Flash Game License store where everyone did their bidding, which was exactly the same. The artwork was maybe slightly different, but the game was the same. There was no way this person could have copied me. It was obviously a coincidence. But um, it was the first time I really understood that probably if you're thinking of a game idea, someone else is probably thinking of it too. Mm. Uh, and and so speed is of the essence and you shouldn't be too precious about your ideas. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Hey, thanks a lot, Simon, for coming on the show. But the last question is that if people want to talk to you about, you know, startups, entrepreneurship, what's the best way to get in contact with you? So there's a couple of ways. The first way, which is probably easiest, is just to DM me on Twitter. It's Simon W.R. Hill, the actual Twitter handle is one of those ridiculous generated Twitter ones, which I'll say now, you're going to have to rewind it over and over again to get it. It's Simon HI27130301. There you go. Lovely stuff, huh? Nice and easy to remember. Uh, or it's just simonwrhill at gmail.com. It's probably a little bit easier. But if you're intent on using Twitter, that's your punishment. <laughs> good, good stuff, man. Hey, Simon, thanks for coming on the show and take care in London. No worries. Thanks very much indeed. Yeah. Uh, speak soon. Thanks again, Simon, for coming on the show. There's a new online course on the Elite Game Developers website. Pitch your games company. If you're looking to raise funding for your game startup and want to know what it's all about, I recommend that you take a look at courses.elitegamedevelopers.com. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>